I grew up here in San Francisco in the Mission District. I was raised by a single mom. My mom was raised Catholic, and it was important to her to have me raised Catholic. It was always pretty much me and her throughout the whole thing. She was everything to me. She was all I had. The whole appeal of gangs to me was being part of a group of friends, hanging out and having each other's backs. The gangs brought the, the respect that I always wanted. The whole appeal of easy money, being a 16-year-old, being able to afford things that adults don't have, got me going into selling drugs. But still, it wasn't enough for me. Something inside was missing. And I, and I started using the drugs. Hey, maybe this will make me happy. The last few years of my mom's life, I put her through the worst hell I could even imagine for anybody. My whole life was nothing but drugs and waking up in the morning thinking about drugs. I wanted my mom to know that before she died, that her son was not on crack cocaine, not gonna be lost in drugs. In the inside, I wanted change, but I couldn't. I couldn't stop. The addiction was so strong. It was a deep anguish I had. And I remember crying out to God, asking him, please, to help me, to deliver me from this crack cocaine, to deliver me from, from these drugs. All of a sudden, it was, it was like a miracle. I just remember feeling the freedom that I was free from drugs. I had, it was something I can't even describe. You know, I remember jumping on the bus with joy in my heart, going to the side of my mom's bed and showing her money. Look, mom, I got money and it's not going towards drugs. God got a hold of me. He did something for me today. That's definitely something I remember forever. I was going to church for about a year and a half after that, just the, the transition of being clean for the first time in my life, being on my own for the first time. Little by little, I started letting things creep in. Justifying it by telling myself, oh, you still got a job, you're still paying the bills, you're still okay, you know, as long as I stayed away from the drugs, I could kind of still do, you know, dibble and dabble in, in, in things. And kind of putting, you know, the whole serving Christ with my whole heart kind of in the back burner, like oh, I'll do that later on. I met my fiance, Jennifer, and uh, we had a son, and uh, I was excited to, to be a father. Just when I thought everything was going uh, how it was supposed to go, one day I came home and, and found she had passed away. It was a shock to know that I had to raise a little baby by myself. really alone. There was something inside of me that I needed to cry out to God again, to be with me in this, in this, through this pain. I never looked at it as God being a God that was punishing me. It was more of a God that could help me. When I was hooked on drugs, God was faithful and delivered me. When I strayed away, he embraced me with open arms. I knew that, that if I came to God, he would help me to raise my son. Going to church and not really being connected uh, in the ministry with other people around me definitely made it easier for me to, to start straying. This time I, I knew I needed to find a church where I could plug into and, and a church that my son would love going to. And I found that at Cornerstone. 
I can say that, that, that I've gone through some difficult stuff, but I can truly say that God has always been right next to me, walking with me, giving me strength, and I can trust in Him. Five years ago, I really committed my life to Christ and, and, and wanted my life to count for something, for, for, for time and for eternity, to be able to, to, to raise my son in the ways of the Lord. This baptism means a lot to me, you know, to be able to stand here and identify myself with Jesus Christ and what, what he's done for me. Community's the whole thing. We weren't meant to be Lone Ranger Christians. We're meant to, to serve with one another, shoulder to shoulder. At Cornerstone, I found a church where I was able to be hands-on, to connect with other brothers, to help in some way or form. You know, even just serving in on the security team, uh, running a small man's group, and just knowing that God's with me every step of the way, knowing that God's by my side while I'm raising my son, while I'm going through storms, while I'm going through struggles, knowing that God is with me every single step of the way. My name is Lou Avalos, and this is how I'm building my life. It's uh, great to hear uh, all the stories that we've been hearing these past few weeks, just real different pictures of different parts of our church community and some of the amazing things that God's doing in people's lives, like, like Lou and, and uh, his, his little son, Anthony. It's, it's really great and it's pretty exciting because sometimes we take for granted that um, these things are happening, but we don't really know about them. So every now and then, I think it's really helpful for us to pause and just reflect on what it means to be an outreach of Christ's love and grace and how it can actually affect people's lives in, in significant ways. And uh, you know, one of the things that we're doing as a church community, I think many of us are aware of the whole Isaiah 542 you know, project, the 542 project that we've been sort of committing ourselves to, this idea of the second campus on the west side of the city. You know, it's a little step of faith for us to do this. Um, it's, on, it's gonna be on Brotherhood Way by Lake Merced. And the idea is we're gonna have you know, two campuses, one church. It's really, we wanna be able to reach more people, we wanna be able to touch more people with the, the unique way in which we've been given an opportunity to be part of presenting the message of Jesus in our city. And so we're excited about that. One of the things that's gonna be happening, I just wanted to make everybody aware of it, is we actually, next Sunday, we're gonna be having our first sort of gathering there. It's a rally that we're having, and it's more of a, just a, an opportunity to come and see the facility that we're gonna be using, again, as the second site. And uh, it's something we're gonna have a little bit of, of, of food there and, and uh, an opportunity for those who are already committed to helping launch that. And anyone who else just wants to see it, uh, it's just for our whole church to be able to participate as much as you feel led to do so. And, and again, we're really excited about it. I think it'd be great to everybody see tangibly what we're talking about. And of course, we're now in, in, a, in a bit of a, a lead up to the launching, which is not gonna occur till somewhere in January, but we are still asking, we, and by the way, thank you to all of you, so many of you have turned in already uh, cards to us and given us really uh, commitments to wanna serve, both either at the Merced site 
Um, a lot of you have said that you wanted to fill in here in the Mission Campus, uh, hadn't served before, or have been you know, not really serving for a little while, maybe have before. You're jumping in, you see the need, really appreciate that. So whether it's serving, whether it's giving, or it's just praying, really, you know, our church is actually taking a real leap of faith, and we're trying to do something for God that we feel like we're supposed to do. And uh, this is something that's gonna require all of us working together. So be aware of that. And in fact, it connects beautifully with this whole idea of how to build a life, because that's what we're, in, we're into. We're, we're trying to see people, their lives touched by God's grace and built. So let me go ahead and pray. We'll jump right in to today's message. And Lord, we thank you again, Lord, first off, um, what a gracious, you know, what a privilege it is to be able to speak about you and to be able to share your words. And I want to pray for your grace to just fill this house. Um, we'll come as honestly as we can before you. We want to ask you to speak to us along the way. We're investing time. It's a good thing. It's a right thing. We sing about giving our lives to you. But we're also offering up this time to just focus our heart and our mind and our soul. I pray that there would come meaningful work that would occur inside of us. That we would think well. We would reflect well. We would take these things and not just appreciate them and then leave and, and not think about them. But some of us would wrestle with some of the things we're trying to that hear that you're saying. And, and also when we're sharing in our other relationships, our small groups, just to maybe throughout the week here, just to sit with them some more and remind ourselves about your wisdom that you have for us as we seek to construct a life that's well built for you. I want to ask you to bless our time, ask for your grace and the goodness of God to fill this house in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. All right, I want to just push into this. We've been talking about Nehemiah. Again, that's where our series has been built around. We've been trying to get into this figure of Nehemiah. Some of you now are well aware of who he is. Nehemiah, Old Testament figure. There's a book named after him. Bottom line, Nehemiah wanted to help build a wall around Jerusalem. That wall, which had been um, torn down um, years before Nehemiah's birth, uh, was something that he had a vision to see happen for the city of Jerusalem. Because the walls in the ancient days meant security. It meant the ability to compound your assets. It meant not having to live vulnerable uh, to plunderers and raiders. And so God really put it in the heart of Nehemiah to start a building project. But he was going to have to see a lot of things happen for it to really succeed. We've been talking a lot about it. Let's just pick up with uh, the, his words that he shares after he had left Persia, returned to Jerusalem, and not really told anybody about why he had come to the city of Jerusalem, but he had spent a few days looking at the condition of the city, assessing the challenges that were before him, both from the standpoint of the wall itself, the enemies and those who were in control, the power brokers, and he wanted to also get a sense of the morale of people. What was their attitude right now? Would they even want to do it? Well, this brings us to the 16th verse. We're gonna read through it fairly rapidly. The city officials, did not know I had been out there or where, what I was doing. For I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem, as you can see, it just lies in ruins. And, and these gates have been destroyed by fire. They've never been rebuilt. The, 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 he basically says, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. And then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been with me and on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's do this. Let's rebuild the wall. And so they began the good work. And then we're told, again, just pausing for a moment right there, we have made an attempt to connect the idea 
between, the, between Nehemiah building a wall for the safety and protection of Jerusalem, and we've been trying to say that in a similar way, God wants to build security and wholeness into our lives as well. And we've tried to say that this is more than just a historical piece that we're looking back on that happened 2,500 years ago um, about a man named Nehemiah and the city of Jerusalem, that we're trying to say that it actually has tremendous relevance for you and I in this day, in this modern times that we live, that the principles endure time and transcend generations, that there is tremendous value in what we're about to look at, and we will see it, I hope, unfold. Let's go on. We notice that as soon as he makes this, this uh, sort of declaration to the people and asks them to join in, and they say yes, and that we see the immediate rising of opposition. This opposition is going to be a big part of the Nehemiah account. We're told here that there were three men in particular, their names, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who heard of our plan, and then they scoffed contemptuously. They, they said, what are you doing? Are you rebuilding against the king or rebelling against the king? They asked, and I replied, no, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share in a legal right or historic claim to Jerusalem. It's a, it's a statement that Nehemiah makes. Now, we know what happens next, by the way. What happens is that it, Nehemiah calls everybody together. The, the officials call everybody. And I mean everybody. It meant the people who were living inside what was left of the city walls and then those who would have been living on the outskirts of the city as well. They're all called together. And they're called and challenged to join this project of rebuilding the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. They're coming from very different places in life. Uh, one of the things that's pretty clear when you read the third chapter is that you're talking about an entire um, swath of the socioeconomic plane. I mean, it's, it's that you're having people who have tremendous power and wealth, the nobles and leaders. You have, you have those who are more common laborers, who are workers in the fields and the vineyards. And then you have a group of people who are the artisans, the stone workers, the masons, and, and uh, people who have skills, artisans and craftsmen. And really, it's, all of them are being called together. It's a comprehensive challenge. Everybody's being called to instead focus on one thing, one objective, to build the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is trying to remind them that they have something, all of them, to benefit from doing this and that God wants them to work together. They, and amazingly, they decide to do it. Even, in fact, he, Nehemiah even says, look, I even want all the men and the women to still join in this project. He says, women, I, I'm going to need you to help with the food distribution and the supply allocations. The men, I need you to be prepared to work. All of you, even those who aren't accustomed to working hard, I need you to come. And I need everybody to bring a weapon with you as well. So that goes out. Then we're brought to the third chapter. Now, the third chapter is an, uh, one of those chapters that usually people just, when they're reading through the Bible, they kind of like skim fast through it. Because it's got this sort of repetition of names and it's referring to places in the city of Jerusalem and certain spots on the wall that would have no real relevance to you and I. And, but I will tell you this, from an archaeological, historical perspective, this is one of the most highly prized chapters in all the Bible because it gives us the most vivid description of the ancient city of Jerusalem of any chapter in all the Bible. And in fact, it's a historically prized piece. However, the point of Nehemiah here was to tell us something else. And you can kind of just follow along with me. Look at the first verse here. And I'm going to read it. I'm reading this for a reason. There'll be one phrase that keeps coming up. See if you can pick it up as we move along. It's, it shows up at least six times in the first five verses. Then Eli. Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brother and the priest and built the sheep gate, and they consecrated it and hung its doors. They built it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, and as far as the Tower of Hanel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, notice that phrase, next to 
next to Eliashib, and then next to them, Zakur, and then you go down to verse four, and next to them, Merimoth, and then you go down next to them, and then next to them, Zadok, and then next to them, the Tekoanites. I mean, what you see is that, go, and it goes on through the entire chapter, just like this, names that we would never use today. And, and that phrase, next to them, building. Next to them, building. And you get the picture. It's the picture of Nehemiah grouping the people, in a lot of cases, by families and tribes, and saying, look, you are responsible for this piece of the wall. And then next to them, you are responsible. And then next to them, you are responsible. And I'm wanting you all to work individually on your piece, but collectively we are a unit. It's a powerful picture of unity. Now, bearing that in mind, keeping these, this, these two passages that we've just looked at sort of right before us, I wanna sort of jump into an extended version of application. And here's what, how I'm approaching it. I would like us to think about, I'm calling it power principles. And Concepts that we can put our arms around and hands around, I'm hoping, and learn from. So this is, this is I'll just start by suggesting this. Notice that there is a power, a, a true power in making a decision and sticking with it. One of, the, one of the things that was apparent with Nehemiah is that he was calling them to decide. I need you to decide. I need you to make a commitment. I need you to step on uh, across a line and say, we will do this. And I can give you all the reasons, and I'm giving you them now. But I, the bottom line is this. Unless you say you are willing to do it, we're not moving forward. And they all said, we are willing to do it because we recognize that God is with you and he is in this. And they made a decision. When we make decisions, and we will be brought to places in our lives where we will have critical building places where we have to make decisions. And a lot of times, we will spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the right decision is. Because I'm privy to a lot of different stories that are going on in different parts of people's lives, I'm also privy to my own, I know that there come these juncture points where we have to make decisions. Even as a church, we have to make decisions. When we make a decision, we try to get the best account that we can of what's exactly happening, make the most intelligent, um, God-centered decision we can make. And one of the ways we approach life decisions is we, we, we talk to people we trust, try to listen for the voice of the Lord, we pray, we, we try to look and weigh things out. I mean, think about it, when Nehemiah, we talked about this, when Nehemiah comes into the city, he doesn't just walk up and say, hey, guess what, I'm here, uh, let me tell you what we're gonna do. He takes three days before he tells anybody what he's doing. He goes around and he really seeks to understand. Remember we talked about that last week? He really assesses the, the, the uh, environment he wants to really understand what the challenge is at every level, not just at a, at a building level, but also what's going on in terms of the opposition of this project. What's going on with the people and their own heart with God? Again, we talked about all of that. Jesus himself talked about the value of not making reactive decisions, of not simply going off of our emotions. Um, now, I know there are times where we do not have the luxury, I get it, of, of taking our time. But there, but most cases, big decisions, we have time to sit with something. In that place, though, after we've done all we know to do and we make the best decision, the best God-informed decision we can make, and we make the decision, it's important when we do that not to then start waffling back and forth. The Bible says in James 1.8 that a, a double-minded man, a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways that one of the real challenges when we actually make a decision to step forward with something we sense God's calling us to do or make a decision that we feel is the best decision we know, one of the normal things that happens to any of us is we start to question as we move a little bit forward into it, am I making the right decision? 
And what happens is fear can very easily creep in. I've seen this happen on numbers of occasions. There's a tendency to start doubting. And if we're not careful, we start going back and forth, you know, and then all of a sudden we let that fear creep back in and our resolve starts to buckle. And then, then we start moving into this paralysis of indecision. And then before long, we find ourselves beginning to allow that indecision to intrude, that doubt starts to intrude upon our conviction. And we question why we made the decision. We made, and we just, if we're not careful, we can begin to allow something. In other words, when, here's one thing. When we make a decision, as best as we know, barring some absolute clear sense that this is a disaster and pull back, I mean, barring that, you move forward with absolute conviction. And once we go, we go. You see what I'm saying? We go. It's not going to matter. You give it your absolute best shot. Now, that's what Nehemiah is going to say. We made a decision. We got to stick with it. Secondly, Nehemiah has another understanding. He clearly has a sense of what we will call the power of momentum. The big mo, the momentum. And you play sports, if you've played team sports, or you just follow them, you understand the power of momentum. It's true at an organizational level as well. It's true at a church, it's true at a community, it's true at a family, it's true. Listen, when you have momentum with you, it, it, momentum covers a lot of deficiencies. It, it really does. And, you can, and it's hard to describe and define what momentum is. How would you, if someone says, what is momentum? Well, it's that feeling that you just, it, the, it's, it, you are in the right place. It's, it's almost when you're playing a sport, you almost feel like you've got an extra man when you've got it. It's a powerful dynamic. It's almost psychological. It's, it's, a, it's a sense that things are going our way and, and, it, and you start, you're not overthinking, you're just going and you're, you're getting optimum, maximum performance because the momentum is with you. And inevitably, you know, Nehemiah is saying, look, we got the momentum. We have, the, we have started. We have the momentum. But he also realizes, and this is true of any breakthrough in life, anytime we're really trying to build something, he realizes that that momentum is going to be challenged. And there are going to be, there's going to be real opposition who's going to try to stop that momentum and turn it in the other direction. And you understand that once we get, it's, to launch something requires a lot of energy, but once it gets going, it's not as much energy to keep it going. Launching is the hardest part. It is the, it's where the real, it's sort of like, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's like the rocket ship. When it's got to break out of the gravitational pull, the thrusters are important, right? But once it launches out of the pull, right? Drops off the thrust. Now it's going. It's broke free, right? You see, that same principle applies. Now, Nehemiah's going, we're breaking out. We're breaking out. We got to get out of it. We got to get out of this thing. The thrusters are on, right? It's the momentum is with them. But you know what? In life, what I've noticed, and it came out in the video, there will be things that happen that, are, that blunt our momentum. And some of those things, in my mind, they kind of fall into three categories, but I'm just thinking like this. There are external things that I say that will oppose. Sometimes things happen externally that oppose us, and, and it's, it affects our momentum. For example, we might have a, a storm that interrupts our lives, like what we saw. And something that happens that's so devastating that it alters our life, and we have to deal with it. It's like life will not go on the way that it was. This storm is so intense, so enormous, so impacting, that it is altering my life structure. Some storms that are external, we had nothing to do with them. We didn't, we didn't control them. There are things that happen in life we don't have any control of. I mean, things like the economy, uh, certain things that happen at na natural disasters, things that happen just in personal relationships, some things we have influence in and some things we don't. Some of us who've grown up in a broken home, 
we, we did not control that. We don't control who our parents are. We, don't, we, can't, we become at some level, uh, and I'm not going to use the word victim, but I'm going to say this, that we become, in a sense, byproducts. of. We have to deal with things that are a product of someone else's decision that we had no control over. The point is, there are storms in life that come. We didn't do anything. They just happen. We have to decide how we're going to deal with it. I, thought, <laughs> I actually thought there was quite a profound statement made in the video piece that was just shown, that we just shared together. When he says, you know what, I, I, I wasn't going to blame God. It wasn't like I felt like God was mad at me. I wasn't blaming God. If anything, he says, I, I, I was appreciative, and I welcomed God into my difficult place. I was like, wow, what, a, what an, that is the way to negotiate. That is, that is a beautiful example of just saying, Lord, I, I know you are with me. I know you are on my side. Some opposition is external. Some, some resistance, though, comes, and I'm going to say this. It will make more sense to some than others, but there is such a thing as spiritual resistance. Jesus clearly talked about the existence of the evil one. He said that there are times when you're trying to make spiritual progress, that there are spiritual forces arrayed to undermine that. There are times where we can feel it nipping at our heels, that there's something that is trying to work against us from moving forward at a spiritual level with the things that God is calling us towards. I get that. I think a third piece, though, is something, to me, sometimes it's the hardest one, um, which is the internal struggle of opposition. And what do I mean by that? Internal, as opposed to external and spiritual. What I'm suggesting is that a lot of times, the hardest opposition is when we are our own worst enemy. When we are our own worst enemy. When we are, in our own heart, creating our own problems, and there's nobody to blame, and it's not about you know something that's happened. It's about our choice, our choice, our decision to, to hold on to stuff. Maybe it's connected, listen, to stuff from our past, reemerging habits that we've acquired that, that just keep haunting us scripting that we just can't seem to let go of and get free from, all the stuff we explored there, and, and stuff that reasserts itself in our life and will divide and damage the things that we love the most. That a lot of times in that place of stubbornness, sinfulness, and pride, in that place of struggle, it's really hard to not feel just defeated and just want to give up. I'll tell you a verse that means so much to me. Uh, it's in Isaiah 41.10. Maybe it'll be a blessing to some of us here. This is what the Lord says, for fear not, for I am with you, right? Fear not, for I am with you. I, I, do not be dismayed. Think about this. That's an interesting word, because I am your God. Do not be dismayed, because I am your God. But, you know, dismayed has to do, I think, sometimes with that feeling of, like, um, I've just given up. I've lost my hope. I've lost my will. Uh, there's something that has come in to sort of just steal away my dream. I'm just defeated. And you know, in that, but the Lord, what was the Lord say? Fear not, for I am with you. Uh, do not be dismayed. I am your God. And think about it. I will, I will, I don't have this, I will strengthen you. I will be your help. Think about that. My righteous right hand, I will uphold you with it. When the Bible uses that poetic language, that righteous, the right hand always meant in the ancient culture the, the hand of strength, the power of God. That my power will be sufficient for you. My grace, it's like what Paul, what he told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Even when, when we are tempted to be dismayed by the obstacles that are before us, when the momentum has turned against us, even there, God is with us. God will not, he is on our side. 
That was the whole point. Remember last week we talked about the parable of the prodigal and how the father runs to, this, runs to his lost son in his rags and in the one who had left with arrogance and disobedience. He left him, demanding his way. And yet when he came back, he was not rejected. He's loved. That's the picture of the heart of God who gives everything for us. One of the things I remind myself is that God is for us, not against us. He is with us. And I will help you, he says. I love that. Do not be dismayed. Powerful. It's going to come up here. Then that leads us right into this, the power of words. That's the third power. The power, the principle, the power of words to inspire or to undermine. And this whole idea of words shows up so powerfully in this particular account because what does Nehemiah do? Just stay with me. What does he say? He says to them, listen, let me tell you, this all begins, this whole building project, this whole movement to get better, to use our analogy. He, it starts because Nehemiah says, let me tell you something about God and what he wants to do in your situation. And let me explain to you how I know God is with us. And if we will cooperate now and work together, the Lord will give us a significant point of victory and success. We must, if, I'm telling you right now, and he becomes a catalytic his words begin to stir them up. And, and all of a sudden they want to say, we will do, yes, we recognize God is with us. And there's this power of words when they come. Sometimes it's the words of a friend. Sometimes it's the words, the, the faith-inspiring words of, of uh, it could be of a teacher, or it, could be, it could be in a small group, or it could be when we're reading God's word. And all of a sudden it's like that becomes alive to us. And it becomes like the word we just shared in Isaiah 41.10. The power of words, if we choose to, but you know what, with positive words, you'll notice there were positive words and faith-inspiring words, but there were also in the same passage, what do we see? we see? We see destructive words too. We see words that were sent to undermine and to, and to reduce their courage and to extend to them doubts and to cause them to question their motives and their worthiness. And those words, you know, those words were also very powerful words. In fact, so much of the opposition will be in the form of words and it will be Nehemiah's words against these words. And it's almost like there are times where we have words that we're having to weigh out in our life, words of our past, self-words that tell us what we can't do or words that are designed to undermine what God's trying to do, saying, you'll never change. This will always be how it is. Go give up. You know, then words that come from God that say, no, this is the time to contend, to build. And we get to decide which words we are going to embrace. And what we embrace in large part, shapes our future. The words that we embrace, consciously or unconsciously, shape a lot of our future. That is why it's so important to ground ourselves on the words of God and to embrace them. David said, your words have I loved. They are life to me. See, the power of embracing a word. It's a wonderful thing when a good word comes our way. But we have to choose which word we're going to embrace. The power of words. But even more than that, Nehemiah makes the point here, there's also the power of not just our words, but also there's this whole idea of serving. And I want to talk about that as well. The power of not just of words, but the power of trusting God for our future success. Because our future success in large part is dependent on what we choose to embrace. I just mentioned that. Now, I want to have us just briefly shift for a moment. You'll notice that there is this um, prayer I put, a portion of a prayer I put in the quotation section inside the handout. The part of this has to do with 
trusting God with our, our future success. In Nehemiah's case, he was encouraging them to trust God. He, they said, how are you guys going to make it? He says, the God of heaven will help us succeed. I was thinking about this whole idea of succeeding, of, of sustaining. Because remember, okay, so stay with me on this one. The, they had rubble around them. They had become content with the rubble. I, we talked about this. God was saying, you are living below your potential. You are living below. You are accepting an environment that is not my will for you. And so God sends them a helper to help them break out of what they had become comfortable with, even though it was dysfunctional and unhealthy, they had become at peace with it. We talked about that. God will challenge us around our future because he wants us to move into it with a greater health and greater dimension of blessing. And that comes out so clearly here. Now, this prayer is an interesting prayer. It's given to us by a man named Samuel Brangle. This is one of many men who in his own era was a great man who have long, there are so many people who were great in their day and never are remembered anymore. Um, if you think about it, of all the millions and millions of people who live, the names that we actually know and what we know about them are so little. Each generation's definition of greatness changes and, and kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Vanity of all vanity, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Having said that, Samuel Bringle was a great man in his own day. He, he ministered in, in, was an evangelist who ministered in a preacher and a teacher and a leader in the Salvation Army, a second generation leader who in his day, uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, had a tremendous impact for the cause of Jesus Christ. He wrote this prayer. I thought it was profoundly, because it, it profoundly connected with the prayer, really the, the statement of Nehemiah to pursue success. Look what he says here. And it's a just great prayer period for us. Keep me, O Lord, from waxing mentally and spiritually dull. Help me to keep the physical, mental, and spiritual fiber of an athlete of a man, we would say, of a man or woman who denies him or herself daily to take up his cross, their cross, and follow you. Give me good, there it is, give me good success in my work, please, I ask you. But hide pride from me. Save me also, Lord, as I am succeeding, not just from pride, but also from the self-complacency that so frequently accompanies success and prosperity. Also, save me from the spirit of, of sloth, which is a tendency towards laziness, he says, and, and self-indulgence as, as physical infirmities and decay creep upon me. You know what he was saying? As I age, this is part, and this man becomes an amazing example of growing old well. And he goes, as I age, help me to keep my growing edge. Keep me, Lord, from using my frailties as an excuse from being passionate about you. Help me, God, to live with life in my eyes. The biographer is quoted by Gordon MacDonald later, and I put this little piece there. They're talking about Brangle. Thus praying daily and hourly, the prophet kept his passions hot and his eyes single, oh, even as he came down the decline. Something about that phrase caught me. He kept his eyes single even as he came down the decline. Even as his outer body perished or started to lose its strength, his inner person was renewed daily. He becomes an amazing contributor for the kingdom into his late, late years. Now, again, there are times when we need to trust God for our future success, but there's also a power that goes even, even I guess, a little further than that. And it's the power of, that comes, and it's captured by Brangle later on. We'll see it. 
um, in reaffirming our relationship with God. So let's just kind of put this up on the board real quick as well. The power of reaffirming our relationship with God. What do I mean by this? What am I talking about? Nehemiah says, they say, who are you? And he says, you know who we are? Not only are we people who trust in the God of heaven, but I'm going to tell you who else we are. We are his servants. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say, he doesn't say we are his special people. He doesn't say, you know, who we are. We are the ones who are going to show you how it's done. He doesn't say any of that. He says, you know what we are? We are his servants. And it's almost like he's saying, and we haven't been that special. But you know what? We have one thing that we do. and We haven't even done that well. But we've made a commitment to serve the one God. And it's like he's saying, that's who we are. He reaffirms their relationship. He's saying, Lord, we want to be a people who serve you. That's what we do. And it might be like us saying, you know, Lord, I may not serve you great, and I may not serve you well, but you know what? <laughs> and I might have a lot of, <laughs> at the end of the day, Lord, if you'll have me, I want, to serve you. I want to be known as one who serves you. And if that's what I have, then that's what I have. And I may not even do it. And they were not, they were like, it's like Nehemiah was saying, we may not have been doing it that great, but you know what? That's who we are. And that's what we're committed to. So you want to know why we're doing this? Because we serve the one, the one God of heaven, and we are here to serve his purpose. It's powerful. It's like saying, and I may not live up to what I desire. We may not live up. We, don't, we haven't been living up to it. That's why we're in this place. But what he is saying is this, but this is who we are by his grace. And his grace is such a big deal. It really is. Oh, and that reminds me, just stay with me while we're on it. Brangle, later on, remember I mentioned him at that prayer of his? He goes on to talk about how when he was coming to apply for the Salvation Army. Now, a lot of us, we think of the Salvation Army today, we pretty much think of it as a charitable organization that sort of you can donate things to. That's certainly one of the things that it does. But in its original day, in its origin, it's called the Salvation Army because it was a group of intensely committed people who were contending for both service but salvation for other people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they had rigid discipline and structured themselves like an army. No violence, not militant, but extraordinarily committed. Its founder, William Booth, was an amazing man. Brangle and many others like Brangle who were attracted to him. Just stay with me because I'm talking about the power of serving right now. And what, let me just read this to you. Just stay with it for just in the closing minutes. He says that Samuel Logan Brangle served more, this is not in your handout, so you just got to listen, for more than 40 years in the Salvation Army as a young man with a heart for evangelism and ministry. He turned down a very tempting offer to pastor a very renowned and affluent church and instead applied for service in the Salvation Army. William Booth, the founder of the army, admonished him, Brangle, you belong to the dangerous classes, by which he meant the privileged class, the educated, well-educated class. You have been your own boss for so long that I don't think you will want to submit to the Salvation Army discipline. We are an army, and we demand obedience. Undaunted, Brangle joined the army in 1887, and the first thing he was told to do, he was sent to work cleaning boots in a dingy cellar. After a while, he wondered about this apparent waste of his time and his talent. Tempted in his heart to seek rapid promotion, he prayed, Lord God, am I bearing my talents? Is this the best they can do for me in the Salvation Army? Am I a fool? As quick as he asked that question inside of his own heart, the answer seemed to come to him. He says, as he saw in his mind Jesus kneeling and washing the disciples' feet, his own Lord performing such an unimportant task. 
Years later, Brengel wrote about that time of shining boots. He says, it was the best training I could have ever had. I was practicing humility, and that experience put a key in my hand to unlock the hearts of lowly people, he says, all around the world for the next 40 years. I had access to that. Powerful. The power of having a servant's heart, nothing below us. The servant, Jesus said, Jesus said this, And every time I'm tempted to ever think anything more of myself, I remind myself, at my best, I am simply an unprofitable servant. Jesus said, when you have done your duty, say to yourself, you're an unprofitable. In other words, it's all about grace. Never, even in our highest service, it's still about his grace. You see, powerful. Last two things. We are reminded then of the power also of declaring our intention. I'll just quickly say this. What I mean by that is differing, number one. Number one is, stay with me, it is not doubting once we've made a commitment, sticking with it. But number six is being accountable to other people, putting it on the board, saying, I, this is what I will do. I want you to know about it. I want you to pray with me. I am, I am committing myself. I'm declaring my intention. And then the last one, the power, it's the obvious one. You see it, the power of working together, the power of unity. The power of two better than one, threefold cord, not easily broken. The reason for community. The reason Jesus said, when you serve me, he didn't say, go out on your own. He sent them, even his disciples, two by two. He was like, you were made for community. That's what he's telling us. We were designed to serve next to one another, to share life with one another, to pray for one another, to grow together, to train together, to sharpen one another, to be there. When one is down, the other one is up. Confess your faults. One to another, pray for one another that you may be healed, the Bible says. James is very clear about it. There is a power in confession that requires relationship. For some healing will never come in any other way but that way. There is power in working together. There is power not only in terms of, listen, not only in terms of what it produces, because it's going to produce for them a wall, a big breakthrough. There's a power in the production of what it, because you understand it, the law of synergy applies, right? We can always do more together than what we could do individually if we just added it up. But together, it creates a dynamic that goes even further than just the sum of its parts. There's a production value in unity, but there's also a safety value in unity. Woe to the one who is alone when they fall. There is a power in having others with us and running this race, building our lives together with God, with others. It's what we talk about small groups. It's what we talk about getting engaged in a community beyond just even attending. How, what a wonderful opportunity it is right now for that to happen. But listen, not only for production, not only for safety, but also for the joy. Because there's a joy and a unique satisfaction that comes from working together to be part of something that you build together for God. There's something unique about it. It's so different. It's, when it's working, it's one of the best things ever. It's like saying, I'm not just going to be on the outside. I'm joining the party. I'm in the game. I'm there. I'm building. I'm showing up. I'm coming. I'm there. I'm in. This is the time. So there's a value in serving together. The joy of it the blessing of it. That's what we're going to end with. The song that we're ending with is everything to do. It's just a lighthearted song, but it has one salient point. Don't be alone. Let's pray. We'll have our time to give and close out, all right? Let's do that together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I want to, I want to ask your blessing over our time here, and uh, I, I thank you so much for the privilege of just being able to share together. We all have had this. And, and now as we just, you know, prepare to move forward in the rest of our day and the rest of our week, I just pray that we just think 
one, about what we're building together with others for you, but also about just continually welcoming your grace into our life. And again, I just, just think about what a joy it is to be welcomed into this, this great party. I'm reminded when Prodigal came home, they said, let's, let's have a party. Let's celebrate this coming home of one who's coming back to you. Lord, that's what we're about. Help us to be part of lives that are being built for your glory and honor. Help us to know your joy even as we serve. And in the big or in the small, seen or unseen, all done for the glory of God. The privilege is ours. We ask for your blessing. Bless our time of giving. Bless this song as we close out the service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.